You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Look at the family uh, tree here for the Madrigal family, and for these, those of you guys, we're going to the next slide there. For those of you guys that uh, have not seen the film on the family tree side, Mr. Justin, uh, it represents three different generations. Uh, can we go to the next two slides out? Um, of the top one being Abuela, which is the elderly lady, um, and her deceased husband Pedro have uh, two daughters named uh, Julieta and Pepa. Those are fun names, right? And uh, they also have a, uh, a black sheep child named Bruno, and we don't talk about Bruno. If you guys have seen that, that's the Bruno, that's him. We don't talk about him, but we talk about him by not talking about him. Uh, and if you can see, there's little gold stars. Each of the gold stars represents these little powers, and you can see they're a very matriarchal family. If you, if you notice, all the husbands take uh, the madrigal name there, and the powers flow through the line of the family. And then there's uh, the grandkids, and that's the grandkids round up. Antonio can talk to animals, I think, and Camilo, maybe, I don't remember what they can do. Shapeshift, that's exactly right, right? Dolores can hear a pin drop, like she can hear things really well. Isabella is like beautiful and perfect in every way, and she can make flowers grow and stuff. Luisa's the strong one who can lift up the bridges and all that kind of thing, and we're not really sure about what Mariel, Marabella's um, gift is. And so if you watch the movie, there's a connection there between the personalities and the powers. Each of the gifts matches some of the personalities, like the meekness. Uh, kids can kind of have these like uh, more recessive uh, gifts, whereas the strong, more outgoing ones have these more dominant gifts, and so the personalities are very connected to the superpowers. Uh, and it's also generational, so it's sort of interesting, like the one on the left, Peppa there, is uh, the one that can control the weather. Anybody have anybody in their life that, based on their mood and their attitude, they can kind of just control the weather of the entire family, <laughs> right? So if they're mad, the whole family's mad. If they're sad, the whole family has to be sad because everybody has to be like me and so forth. And so we have this resonance there of, of the personality matching with these kind of superpowers. On the right-hand side, Julieta is more of the recessive. She's less, do- she's less dominant. She's more recessive in her powers, and she can heal things, you know. And it all goes back to this candle that Abuela has, that Abuela uh, has had this candle that represents where the power sources come from, and ever since the grandfather dies, her job is to kind of keep the family together with these powers. And uh, I was utterly confused by this, uh, by this whole family thing, until if we go back to the, the last slide there, Justin, until uh, I read a meme that said, the moment that you're watching Encanto and realize that it's really a big symbolic uh, story about how... Uh, each of us is growing in our personalities based on coping from family trauma. <laughs> I thought they kind of nailed that. I really did think that they kind of nailed that, right? So look at it. It's got anxiety, you know, is what, what it's saying. And uh, it does hit home, doesn't it, um, that our families, all of our families, um, are both formed and forming us by way of not just the triumphs but the tragedies as well. Um, like if I sat down with you for long enough and you got the photo album out and your dad's feathery hair, you know, with the Corvette and your mom graduated a master's degree and we got into the real family thing, there's a trauma and a tragedy back there somewhere if we dug around enough. I mean, long enough on this earth, you know, there's going to be some divorce or some infidelity or some child that died prematurely or there's going to be some uh, maybe less acute, maybe more chronic, you know, problem of dysfunction that has just worked its way out into the generations and for better or worse, it's breaking us or building us. Uh, We can't escape. It's not if, but when. The trauma will form us. The tragedy, not just the triumphs, are going to form who we are. And so uh, we'll learn how to cope with those things. Our virtues are oftentimes our vices. Sometimes those of us in the room that are best listeners um, oftentimes don't understand ourselves the best. 
sometimes the, the ones that are the most easy to get along with is a really great, you know, connection gift, but it also means that we kind of transform according to who we're with and we're not really sure, you know, uh, who we are. Some of us are the clowns and the entertainers because uh, we don't want things to be too sad or get too real too quickly. Uh, you know, some of us um, uh, are perfect or create at least an image of being perfect because uh, we're deeply insecure about the imperfections that are deep down inside of us. And so it is that our trauma can both create our virtues, our gifts, but also our vices and some of our biggest stumbling blocks. And what, you know, good counselors or therapists will tell you, not if, but when you encounter your trauma, I hope that you do it together and not alone. Because just like um, the end of Romans 8, you know, has, has taught us, is that really the stuff that comes uh, against us, um, the evil that is created by those around us and sometimes even by ourselves, um, in, in the hands of Christ or through the hands of Christ is not really there to break us but to build us. And that really the only difference between a traumatic incident in your life breaking you down or building you up is whether or not you walk through it alone or with somebody else. The studies will show that when trauma hits families, that it will either cause the members to go into the corners and lick their wounds and tear them apart, or it will cause them to get stronger together. Haven't you seen both of those different dynamics happen within the, the family when the rain comes and the storm comes is that it either splits the family up or brings the family together and therefore either tears the family members down or builds them up. That's the choice, I think, in our hands that our counselors would tell us and that the gospel would tell us that we could walk with or without Jesus through these storms um, in life. And so uh, as we segue into this whole uh, portion of uh, gospel unity from, uh, again, from chapter 9 through chapter 16, and really this little, um, this little uh, section in 9 through 11 about the Jews, we sort of scratch our heads and wonder, you know, like, what does this matter? Like, why are we sitting here on Sunday morning when I've got bills to pay and trauma and traumatic, you know, incidences and things that go on in my life? Uh, why am I worried about these Jews and why the Jews uh, fell? And so if I could show this one little uh, concentric circle thing. So basically, this is the message that Paul is talking about, is that the Jews and the Gentiles alike have been brought into one family through Christ. And so uh, whereas everyone that is in Christ is not under condemnation, that both of the, uh, the circles that are exclusive to the cross um, are cut off from Christ and in condemnation. And so really, the focus of 9 through 11 is this question that seems to matter to Paul, to God, and maybe should matter to us, is why and how did the Jews fall? How did the Jews that had everything that had everything, the law and the prophets, and even Jesus visit their towns and synagogues and do healings and mighty works, the first row seats, the front row seats of the gospel, how and why did these Jews fall so hard is what the question is asking us. And it seems like it matters enough to God, it matters enough to Paul to put it in our Bibles this morning to read about that the fall of the Jews is somehow relevant to us. The fall of the Jews, you see, um, it wasn't like, you know, reaching up too high that, 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 the, that the standard of the gospel was too high uh, for the Jews to reach, and they somehow slipped off of it. Rather, it was that the gospel was too low for them. It was too common, and it caused them, as Paul says in his language, to stumble over it. You know, it was like the Nixon campaign. I think it was like 64 or something like that. It was like the greatest landslide of all of history, and Nixon was on his way to the second, you know, uh, campaign turn for his, for his election, and he didn't reach up and try and grab hold of it and slip off of it. He stumbled over it. He snuck into some Democratic headquarters to go get these voting files, which meant nothing to the election. And the election slipped through his fingers, not because it was too high and he slipped, but because it was too low and he stumbled over it. Any Tom Brady fans in the room here? 
as if he was going to lose the Super Bowl and needed the balls to be deflated. Sometimes it's at our highest places that we don't reach up too high for the gospel and slip off of it, but it's too low, too common, too easy, and we stumble over it. That's the tragedy. And so the sovereignty of God is less about a Geppetto who's pulling all the strings, right, of the Jewish people, the Gentile people. It's more like the Geppetto that actually makes the kid real. He allows for the Jews in their freedom and in their choice to stumble over something that was not too high for them, but too low, too simple, too close, too unmystical, too unmagical. It was something too common for them to grasp a hold of. And so God, in his wisdom, is not the Geppetto pulling the strings, but it's the Geppetto that's handing them over to what he knew that they were already going to do, that they would harden their hearts and not receive the gospel, but stumble over it. And that the cornerstone that now the builders are going to reject is going to actually cause the exclusion of the Jews, the very family that he wanted. And so why does it matter? Like, why does that matter to us? A bunch of, you know, Bible trivia out here on Sunday morning. It's like this. Think about it. If you had a family and they had the three kids, and uh, you know how families go. The families always have a black sheep and a golden child. You know who that is. I mean, don't say them out loud. You can whisper under your breath. But there's a black sheep in your family, and they get everything wrong, and there's a golden child that get everything right. And here's what I think the point is between the Jews and the Gentiles, because if the black sheep falls down, everything that the family is built on still makes sense, because that's what the black sheep does. The black sheep always does wrong. That's the role of the black sheep, right? That's the point. You, of course you got it wrong, because you're a doofus. You know, that's the idea, is if you're black sheep, you stumble because you were born a stumble, man but not the golden child. What if the golden child in your family, you know, the smart one, the athletic one, the one that got it all right. If the black sheep falls, everything's still the same, but if the golden child falls, the dream falls with it, doesn't it? Because those sports might not have been as cool as we thought that they were and the education didn't get them where we thought that they would get them and they got all the money, didn't make them happy anyways. So what's at risk is not just the kid when the golden child falls, when the chosen one gets fallen, it's the dream that gets fallen. And Paul says this is not an accident that the Jews have fallen. It's his wisdom that he's put this in place, that the legacy of, every family of, in, that the, of the family of God would be based on faith instead of works. So here's the great irony, because most of the time when we consider the pages that are in front of us from chapter 9 through 11, a lot of times, unfortunately, the exact opposite goal of this text is accomplished in the eyes and the hearts of the hard-hearted readers that read it, in the sense that 9 through 11, I can't think of another place in the Bible that we could read that creates more tribes within the Christian faith, right, than triumphs for the family. And so, so, so the irony here is, the irony here is that this passage of Scripture is not given to us as a theology book for us to debate. This is his family photo book. This is God sharing his heart about the names and the faces and the lost ones that should have been at the table that are now empty seats. Romans 9 through 11 is not supposed to be about tribes and what we believe on our systematic theology debates, but it's supposed to be about tears. It's supposed to be about the lost ones, the ones that should have been at the table. It should have been about the family members that should be sitting with us. Many of you guys have tables in your living, and obviously all of us have tables in our dining room, and all of them have chairs, and even in this church you see these chairs, and in the gospel, what Paul is trying to impart to us with this anguish and this tears and this trepidation that he has as he writes his letters. That those, those seats are not for theological debates. Those seats are for tears. That the gospel is, is not for theological arrogance, but it's for tears. The gospel is not for our theological debates to decide who's right and who's wrong. 
It's for us to have our hearts broken for those that aren't at the table. It's for us to realize that the only reason why I'm here is for mercy and not sacrifice anyways, and so I should have tears in my heart because I've been invited to the table. The sovereignty of God is not some exclusive doctrine that talks about the Geppetto that steers all of our lives and tells us ahead of time of what's going to happen. The sovereignty of God is him handing over the people that he already knows are going to stumble over the low things of the gospel and then cause his church to come around, Romans 9 to 11, and weep over the fact that they did and be grateful for the fact that we didn't because of his mercy. It's only by his mercy that we're here that this is mercy and not sacrifice. And so it's the irony of chapter 9 through 11 that in the hands of us, most of the time when we read these chapters, we get confused and get high and lofty and ahead of ourselves, and we start thinking about this chapter as something that needs to divide us into tribes when it's supposed to be for tears and supposed to be for an anguish for those that are lost in the gospel. That's, I think, what the point of Romans 9 through 11 is all about. So if you would uh, put your finger on verse 1, we'll make our way. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God uh, is for the Israelites. They're family members. It's not a theological textbook. This is a photo album of lost ones, the ones he called, the ones he loved, the ones he gave it all to, and they lost it. Like, it's one thing if I, you know, never won the lottery. There's something that sticks with you if you had the lottery ticket in your hand for a million dollars and somehow on the way squandered it and lost it. Not because somebody stole it from you, just because you were foolish, just because you stumbled over it. This is the anguish that Paul feels in his heart of somebody that had everything and lost everything. They traded their stew, traded their inheritance for a bowl of stew. Says that I'll test about. I'll be a firsthand witness. He says I can testify about them that they are zealous. They've got all the zeal and the passion, all the right momentum, but in the wrong direction. They have zeal, but it's not based on truth. They missed Jesus. They had the Bible, and they missed Jesus. And since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Because Christ is the culmination of the law. Christ was on every page of that Bible. It was in every crack and crevice, the sacramental system, the priesthood, the Levitical code, the kings, the covenant, the commands. It was a shadow of the one they missed. How could you miss it? Jesus was the culmination of the law, and they missed it. They squandered it. They stumbled over it so that there may be uh, righteousness is, is the point. Jesus is in the right, and his righteousness is the point for everyone who believes. There's a moment my son was uh, on the stand. Uh, he did a great job, by the way. He uh, was the crane operator in the third-degree murder trial of uh, Zimmerman. Is that his name? Zipus? Zilius? <clears throat> he was guilty anyways. <laughs> and uh, he did a great job. And, uh, you know, moral of the story is even the judge said so, that, uh, you know, the business owner who owned the whole entire construction operation that ultimately led to the death of these two people uh, he was financially guilty, but the crane operator, the one, even though he was just following orders, was still accountable for what he did with the crane. And so Lee was on the stand, and I had this kind of like sobering moment, you know, when you see your son in a courtroom on a stand. It's kind of a scary thought, you know? And uh, it just made me think, or maybe I think too much, you know, dad or whatever, but, you know, it, it came, to, came to my mind like, you know, the hypothetical of what if he really was on the stand for some other kind of crime, and I had to sit there and see him on that stand. Like, I thought about some of the parents. You know, you walk into that, man, all that oak and mahogany and all those doors and the degrees and the judge, and all that kind of like just 
just wiggly, subjective, parental hovering, all that stuff goes out the door pretty quickly when your son's on the stand. You can hover on your, your kid's grades. You can hover on the coach to try and get him to get played. You, you can hover with the friends and kick some of the friends out and bring some of his. I'll tell you where you can't hover in the courtroom. No more hovering in the courtroom. They're either innocent or they're guilty. Doesn't matter if he's a good kid. Doesn't matter if he's got ADD. Doesn't matter if he didn't get a good, you know, run in life. He's on that stand. He's going to answer for what he did. And those text messages that he writes, they're going to come through and they're going to be black and white. He either said it or he didn't. Doesn't matter what they said to him. Doesn't matter who, where he come from. Doesn't matter who his daddy is. He's going to answer for what he says. And I had this sobering reality that quite literally in the spiritual sense, not just in the legal sense, that all four of my kids are going to stand one day before God. And it's not, I'm not going to be able to stand for them. I'm going to be able to whisper little answers in their ear, or tell them they're doing All of it is going to be him and my kids standing before the Lord. And by virtue of that, so will I. I'm not going to answer to my enemies or my critics. I'm not going to answer to the people that flatter me or tell me nice things. I'm going to answer for me. And I'm also going to answer to how I stand before the Lord for what I did in my household. And it has nothing to do if I was in a good mood or people did this. And I'm going to stand for what I stand for. And what Romans has been writing us this whole entire time, there's only two kinds of righteousness. And only one of them is going to stand. There's Christ's righteousness and everybody else's. And though our righteousness is built on, on sand, his is built on the rock, and anything that's not built on the rock is going to fall. And so I just had this sobering thing. I think it's good every now and again to see this. In verse 4, Christ's culmination of the law is so that they would be counted righteous. But the problem is the Jews went off and made their own righteousness. And this is the truth. We're going to stand before God, you and I, and it's not going to have to do with who, who sympathizes with you or who pities you. You're going to answer. And here's the answer. You ready to answer? We're all guilty apart from Christ. I am not the father that I need to be to him. I've let him down. I've set him back. I've gotten in his way. I'm, one of the greatest things that I'd like to wake up today is to see him spurred on and built up towards where he's supposed to be going. And the truth is, is that half the days I don't do it because I'm too selfish and I'm too lazy and because I don't believe in him, because I'm too afraid and because I'm too arrogant. And the answer is, I'm not innocent. I'm not innocent. And neither are you. And so one of the things, I guess it struck me, you know, as a pastor, as a preacher here, it's like, we're trying to get each other ready for that day. And I'm just saying, like, we should make a pact, and we should make a pact every Sunday. Then when we finish our, our life and go out of this life into the next, then when we stand, we stand in his righteousness, not ours. Because there's only two kinds of righteousness, and one of them will stand. The other one's going to fall. None of our righteousness, none of our righteousness is going to stand. Yes, righteousness in us. Yes, Christ has fulfilled the law for us, inside of us. Yes, the Spirit has made us new. But at the end of the day, apart from him, we have no righteousness. It's filthy rags. So we're going to stand or we're going to fall based on whose righteousness we stand on. And let's not just make it for then, but also for now when we stand in the mirror and that accuser comes towards us and begins to speak to us in our ear and the whispers into our heart that we're accused and we're guilty. Let's make a pact that we just say, yeah, apart from Christ, I am. But on Christ's rock, I'm going to stand. You know, I love, my wife does this better than me. People will come to her and say, you did this right, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong. You know what she'll say a lot of times? And I'm like, I need to say, yeah, you're right. I'm wrong. Do you know a Christian that's wrong sometimes? You probably are one too. <laughs> if somebody comes to you and says that you're wrong, you probably are. Good thing you're not standing on your righteousness though. Good thing it's not about you. 
Good thing you don't have to defend yourself and vindicate yourself in front of court as though you're the judge and jury. You're going to answer to one court at the end of the day and none of your defense is going to matter because you're going to stand bare bones empty and your heart's going to be revealed and you're going to find out you're not, you're not innocent without him. Guilty by yourself, righteousness in him. And he invites all people, anyone that wouldn't stumble over the small, low thing of the gospel could receive his righteousness and stand into eternity. But if not, he will let you fall. He will let you fall if it's not his righteousness, if it's not standing on his righteousness. So the great tragedy, right, of the, of the Richard Nixon scandal and the, and the Tom Brady scandal is not that, you know, um, I was reaching really far and I almost, you know, got the million dollars and I fell short of it. It's that I had the ticket in my hand and I went to the thing and I lost the ticket on the way. I stumbled. I got too confused and I missed it is what happened to the Jews. So this is how they missed it. Verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness that is by the law. And this is how you get in trouble when you just read one verse of the Bible. If you read this one verse of the Bible, the Bible would tell you to be a legalist. The person who does these things will live by him, by them. That's the construct of the law. It's, it is the law plus you with no one else. Moses. Moses is telling you that if you live by the law, you're going to live by yourself. And if you can fill every single part of the law, great. Do it by yourself. More power to you. But if you can't, you might want to read verse 6. <laughs> because the righteousness that is actually by faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, who's going to resurrect themselves. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to create an incarnation of Christ by themselves. To bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? From the beginning, Deuteronomy 30. You didn't have to read Matthew 5. You didn't have to read Matthew 28, John 3, 16. This is what the gospel says from the beginning, from Deuteronomy 30, the parting words, the farewell speech of Moses. What does it say? The words near you. It's not far off. It's in your mouth. It's, not in your, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. And that is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. If you declare it with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the great tragedy of, uh, of the gospel is that uh, the Jews, they, they didn't reach too high and slip. They, they stumbled over something easy. They missed a layup. They, they lost the Super Bowl because they missed the field kick, man. This one time I used to play basketball in high school, you know, wasn't very, very great, but I, 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 I managed to survive without any injuries. And uh, that was uh, one of my greatest uh, accomplishments, I guess. That's what happens when you get to ride the bench a lot. And uh, uh, my first basketball injury was actually not in a game, but on the way to a pickup game in college. And I quote to my uh, buddy Zeke on the way over there, Zeke, this is how I'm about to cross you up and, quote, break your ankles. Without the ball, air dribbling, I dribbled a quick right to left, not unlike your old Allen Iverson in 97 against the old MJ himself. And in my zeal, without knowledge, I went right to left and crossed myself over right off of the curb, and broke my own ankle and landed into a bush. <laughs> I actually forgot that I'd injured myself because I got so lightheaded, I went home to take a nap at college. I don't even remember what naps are like these days, but I used to be able to take, na take naps whenever I wanted to, and forgot I was on the top bunk, and so when I jumped off of the top bunk without my ladder, if it wasn't broke before, definitely broke it then. When the nausea and the embarrassment and the blackout all happens at the same time, you do feel quite the pitiful mess. And this is the picture, right, is that 
The reason why they stumbled and why so many of us stumble as well is because we imagine that the gospel is far off, but actually it's near. The statistical analysis of the Bible is that most people will stumble the gospel. Many, many are called, few are chosen. Wide is the path. Most people will look at Jesus and see him too common to see the resurrection in their, in their midst. Most of us, we will think that God is so transcendent and so other and so different and, and above us that he hasn't come near is that we'll, we'll squander our inheritance by looking for God in conferences rather than speaking with our neighbors. We'll believe that, that God is so, so other and so distant and so far off and that the gospel is, is in fact something that we need to go reach for and build for that we'll miss that the gospel is near. Some of us will go off and read um, lots of great books and subscribe to you know, podcasts and and learn a lot of great things. Yet the author of all wisdom and knowledge has the Bible sitting next to us on the nightstand next to our dresser because the gospel's too common. That we will stumble over the gospel because we think that it's far off, that it actually it's near. That many, many, many of us will, will go on and, and think about our place in the gospel, um, even as Kristen was talking about earlier, as some kind of like competency or some kind of tip or self-help habit of something that I need to go and be and do rather than understanding that it's a gift that's been given to me and my gifts are simply walked out simply by sheer obedience. And so most of us will not reach up and try and grab the gospel and slip off of us. What he's saying is that because we're so far-sighted and not nearsighted, the gospel will come too close and we'll miss it and stumble over it. And so here's the deal. Most of us have read this passage a million times before and we think that verses 14 through 15 is about missions. The gospel, Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, is not about missions. It's about the Jews. Listen, he's saying, how then can they call on the one who's not, who, who uh, they don't believe in? This is what he's saying. It's like, if the Jews have stumbled, it's because they've stumbled over something that's near to them, that's come near to them, and it's been too close and too common. So verse 14 says, how then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one that they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching it to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who could bring good news. That's the thing on the bottom of the email from the missions director at the church. Let's go preach the nations. You know what this verse is not about? The nations. You know what it is about? The Jews. It's that Jesus came up out of heaven and came down to earth and performed miracles in their sight. And they read the Bible for their entire lives and couldn't see their nose from their face. They couldn't see Jesus right in front of them and missed it, and stumbled over it. And so the fairy tale has become the cautionary tale. It's, in fact, the golden child has become the black sheep, and it's, it's a cautionary tale to, to us is that oftentimes we're not missing the gospel because it's far off, but because it's too near. I wonder how many buildings in downtown Greenville are built vertically so high, or in any city in America, because we're trying to reach up for something that God's already come down to bring us. I mean, how many careers in this room or in this, in this city or in this country are built of people going distances and distances because they think that God is far off, but they don't realize it's right near. It's right near. The gospel is near in your heart. And this is what it's saying. Like if our, if our culture or if our egos or if our, our self-talk is trying to ever tell us, man, God is far off. He's just around the corner. Keep trying and struggling to go reach for him. 
then it's saying, then look at Jesus. If you can't trust the gospel, then look at the mouth of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Jesus is saying through the lips of Moses, it's not that the gospel is far off, it's that it's too near and then we stumble over it. If you can't trust the mouth of Jesus, he's saying then trust the feet of Jesus. You're telling me that Jesus is going to come up out of heaven and come down to earth. He's going to walk around in temptation and trial and walk through the deserts and get up on a bloody cross and then die and be resurrected again to tell you to be nicer. You think that was the point? That he's come down here to tell you that you have a bad attitude and if you don't get your attitude fixed, you can't go to heaven. Is that what he came to do? He came all the way to heaven to tell you that you just need to get a little bit smarter and then you can get to heaven. This is the point of the gospel. If there's a stairway to heaven, it doesn't go upwards, it goes downwards. The gospel is not called for you to come down, to go up. It's saying, I have come up to go down so that you can be with me and I have come near to you. And so most people, this is what the statistical analysis of the Bible is saying, most people will miss it. Most people. Most people will miss the field goal. They'll miss the lottery ticket. They'll literally have it in their hands. Maybe they believe for a little while and then they give up or maybe they... They're arrogant and they think that it's too political or too right-winged or too left-winged or they think that it's too organized or old-fashioned. It's right there in front of them. It's just the Bible in their face. It's just the neighbor next door to them. It's just the cup of cold water that he's asking to do our obedience. No, I think it's at the conference. I think it's the next book I'm going to go write. I think it's in the dream. I think it's the American thing. I think it's in the car. And they give up their inheritance for a bowl of soup. And that's the common narrative. That's more likely what's going to happen because we, we all, not just like the Jews, but all of us believe that heaven's somewhere far off when in fact that it's near. And so the irony of this whole thing is that none of this is incidental. None of it is accidental. This is all the wisdom of God. This is the plan. This is the plan. You guys know in the movies, like, when you get invested in the characters, and so the director puts little white words that come up on the screen to kind of tell you, get some closure on those characters, what happened to old Mick or whatever. You know, it tells you how long he served in prison and, you know, the job that he went to get off and the person he married and so forth. And so this is the epilogue of the Jews. It's a prophetic epilogue, and it shows you what happened to the Jews was already what was said before they even got here. But the prophet Isaiah and, and, and Moses and Deuteronomy have already been talking about this stuff from the beginning of time. They, they, they were told what was going to happen. They were told what they needed to do to not let it happen. And yet it was, too, it was too common to them. It was too low. They still hardened their heart against Jesus when he came to visit them in their time of visitation. They turned their heart, and they hardened their heart, and they totally missed it. And so this is what the epilogue is. The prophecy becomes the epilogue. In verse 16, But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I asked, did they hear? Well, of course they heard it, but they didn't believe. The voice has gone off into the earth, and the words, the ends of the world. Again, I say, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. And I will make you angry by the nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And so this was the plan all along. This was the plan all along, is that the family of God, the people who had it all, the, the, the testimony and the witnesses, and they had the law and the temple, and they had the Passover, and they had the Red Sea, they had everything. And they lost everything. That, they, that the golden child became the black sheep, the, the insider became the outsider, and it's for a purpose. It's for the wisdom of God that he, he gave them something too simple for them to comprehend, and they stumbled over it. You know, um, when we were teenagers, me and Kyra um, had this uh, guy we knew in our high school um, who worked at Kroger with uh, Kyra named Bobby. And uh, he, was a, he was a real good kid, real nice guy, and he, I don't know, sold Boy Scouts. I mean, he's just a good guy uh, all the way. And then... Uh, uh, 
good guy, and he, he turned 15, he worked at Kroger, and he saved up his money for like three summers a row, and he brought, bought a Mustang. And you guys know of somebody that like, um, somebody that uh, buys a car or a truck, and that car or truck kind of becomes who they are for a season of time? Uh, we always say like, Bobby was a great kid, that Mustang ruined him, man. He just like, everything, the money and the waxing and all that kind of stuff, it just became this, this thing that just like pulled his heartstrings uh, so much, and it was such a... Um, uh, pivotal point, I think, uh, in, in the young man's testimony. I don't know, I haven't spoken to him since. Uh, but I think that's just a little bit of a picture that I, I think that I see with this, with this covenant thing, with this gospel thing that has been given, you know, to these Jews, is that it's like the very tools and resources uh, that, that was able to point them to God became the God. The very thing, like, they, they, they weren't actually seeking after God, they were seeking after their own righteousness. And so the very thing that was supposed to be the vehicle to get them to God became the stumbling block. Because I don't need Jesus if I have the law. I don't need Jesus if I have my own righteousness. I don't, have, I don't need Jesus if I have all this history and this legacy. And you know my granddaddy is. And you know my father is. You know what church I've been to. And it became the stumbling block. The very thing that was supposed to be the vehicle becomes the stumbling block for the Jews. And, and, and God knew it all along and, and, and set them up for this kind of a fall. Because he wants them to see. I mean, I think this is the cautionary tale, right? Here's a group of people who had everything minus Jesus and got nothing. This is supposed to be the legacy, the root of our tree as gospel family that we would always remember, the older brother that got away, the one who had everything minus Jesus and ended up with nothing. What is the culture of a family whose family trauma is founded on that principle except for faith not works? I've got people, you know, he's saying, I've got people that memorize the scripture. You're in a Bible study? I have people that could tell you the Bible without the Bible, man, and they miss Jesus. You're working on Sabbath and rhythms? Man, I got people that have been on rhythms and Sabbath till all the day long. They never found any rest because they didn't have Jesus. You're hearing, you're, you know, you're doing justice initiatives and you're feeding the poor. There's people, man, those, the Pharisees are great guys. They're feeding the poor if it made them look good. And it wasn't with Jesus. So this is the family legacy. This is what we find in God's photo album is the one, this one that got away. You guys remember in, in Luke, the parable of the lost son uh, in Luke 15, lots of parables, great parables that are shared there, but there's an older brother and a younger brother. Did you know that that parable is shared in the audience? And it's not about the younger brother, it's about the older one. That's the truth. Meanwhile, the older uh, son was in the field when the younger one comes home. You know the story. He goes out and he spends all his money on prostitutes and wild living, gets all the inheritance. It'd be like his father was dead. He's cashing out on his inheritance and he leaves and he comes back and here comes the prodigal son. Gets everything that I've been working for for free. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing, and he, was, he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? He says, your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and he has him back safe and sound. The response here is pivotal here. Like, what is the heart? He's not talking, he's not talking to the Gentiles in the audience. He's talking to the Pharisees. That's what the audience is in this passage. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving and, you never, and I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father says, you've always been with me and everything I have is yours, but we have to celebrate and be glad because the brother of yours was dead and now alive again. He was lost and he's now fine. This was the wisdom. It wasn't an incident. It wasn't an accident. It was the wisdom of God to allow the golden child to fall. But the culture of the family would always remember from its origins, from its heritage, that's inheritance, of the people that built this thing in the first place, learning from how they fell, 
is that you can have everything and not have Jesus and have nothing. This was the, uh, this was the whole point of all of the, uh, of all of the Old Testaments and all the covenants and everything that comes in your Bible before the book of Matthew is to show us a people who had the promise of God but missed Jesus. That our family, our, 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 our identity as a church gospel family would always be found on faith and not works. And so what's the point? What's the point? The point is not in this passage in Romans chapter 10 is to harden the Jews' hearts, but to soften it. The reason why he has the prodigal son to come home is because God loves the prodigal son, but it's also to preach to the older son because the older son needs to be reminded that the reason why he's there and the younger son is there is not because of their works, but because of their faith, because of grace. And he's, he's speaking to these Pharisees in this crowd to hear the distance. Can you hear the music in the far off distance? Do you have prodigals in your life? People that are in your fridge, they're calling you late at night. They're rude in every single way. They're a new Christian and they haven't figured out, you know, their walk with Christ and they annoy the snot out of you. And the passage is saying they're there for a purpose. It's not an accident. And it's there to make you jealous. That's what it says. That your heart would not grow hard but grow soft to realize that they're you. There's nothing different about anyone in this room or anyone out there in this world than you and them other than Christ. That's the only righteousness that we have. It's the only righteousness that we can stand on. It's the only righteousness we can boast in. And so that's the test, right? If you're, if you're an older brother or if you're a Jew or just somebody that has been a Christian for a long period of time, be careful of not stumbling. Be careful of not realizing that the things you have are gifts in your possession to give away, not for you to boast yourself up against it. Remember that the gospel is not for arrogance, but for anguish. And if there's any gospel in your head or your heart that you're learning or walking in that doesn't cause you to have tears for your navel, then it's not the gospel. The gospel has come to bring anguish, not apathy. It's come to bring tears to our eyes, that we would have tears about the missing ones. It's not a theological debate about who's right and who's wrong and who knows more. It's about the family member who has been brought in by mercy and not by sacrifice, that we can bring in others by mercy and not by sacrifice. Man, if there's anything about the hardening of the heart theology, it should, we, we should not argue about other people who has a hard heart. We should pray that people would have their hearts softened, including our own, and that we would have tears for the gospel in our eyes. Do you have tears still in the gospel in your eyes? Has it become calcified and hard and bitter and angry about why you don't have what you think you ought to have and why you're working for something that hasn't been given to you as if you're entitled to it? This is, this is the point of the gospel. It's not to harden our heart, but to soften it. And so it's a buzzword right now. You know, it's like toxic relationships and trauma and, and boundaries. I mean, it's what we're all talking about. And I'm just like, we just need to have some good categories like if somebody loses their father or you didn't get the car that you wanted, there's a difference in the category between trauma and just hard knocks, you know? So we should be careful with that. But everybody's pain is pain, and I'm not here to, to judge that. But here's what I think Romans 10 would want to tell us even more than that. The truest trauma that we'll ever experience is somebody, somebody else stumbling over the gospel. That's the truest trauma. The truest trauma is for somebody to have the kingdom of God in their midst through simple faith and choose the American dream instead. That's what's at stake. That's what's at stake for you, and that's what's at stake for me, is that the, the greatest trauma, and I'm saying we have people in this church that have major trauma in their life, major trauma. There's people in the seats next to you that have lost and, and, and have squandered and have, have um, been beat down by major, major emotional and physical things. And what the gospel is here to tell us is that none of that trauma can, can even bear into comparison with the trauma of stumbling over the gospel, of somebody starting their race and not finishing it of starting the Christianity journey and because some celebrity pastor fell or because somebody offended me or because some church like, you know, didn't say hey to me the way that I wanted to, stumble over the gospel, man. Lose inheritance for a bowl of offensive soup. I want my offense, man. 
and you stumble over the gospel, not because it's too far off and God waited over you like a carrot and a stick, because it was too simple, because it was forgive your neighbor, and that was it. And you missed the joy and the peace and the righteousness, and you kept your bitterness, but you, you lost the gospel. He's saying, don't stumble. It's too close to you, and you're going to stumble over if, you, if if you're offended by it. Somebody that thinks it's far off, and it's the dream, and it's going to be this this picture of the perfect family and the picture of the perfect job and the perfect ministry, and he's saying it's closer than you think. It's not far off. It's near. Anyone that would believe in their heart, the gospel will come to knock. It'll be at your heart on the door knocking or inside your heart, sit it down, but it's, it's at your heart. It's not far off. And the truest trauma that any of us will ever experience for ourselves or our family or our neighbors will be to miss the gospel by stumbling, by having a, a hard heart instead of um, receiving him. And so I thought we would... Um, respond to this passage just, just with simple prayer and intercession. I thought that would be the appropriate thing. I th- again, I think that the point of the passage is not to have some theoretical debate over eschatological answers about the Jews or political discussion about the Middle East or, you know, once saved, always saved or whatever. Like, I don't think that's the point. I think that he's opened up this passage by opening up the heart of God to tell us this is not a theology book. This is a family photo album of names that he misses and names that he wants back again because gifts are irrevocable and people that he's calling, people that he's calling in your workplaces, people that he's calling in your family tree, people that he's calling in your past, people that he's calling in your future. And he's saying that this thing is ultimately about hearts. It's not about theology and it's not about methodology. It's about the power of the Spirit to churn the hearts of the soil. The people will not stumble over the love of money and the worries of the world, but they would see what's near to them And if they hear the voice of the Lord, turn and not harden their own hearts. And so I think the point of this passage is that it would lead us to prayer. It would lead us to prayer because God is the only one that can soften hearts. God is the one who has mercy on who he has mercy and compassion on who he has compassion. And he desires that you and your neighbor experience the mercy of God through the gospel of Jesus. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.